Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God bless each and every one of you. So glad that you're here today. I turn your attention to the book of Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. If you're watching by our live webcast, we want to give a shout out to you and say thank you for being a part of our congregation, even though you may not be here physically. Amen. Why don't we give all of our extended campuses a big hand this morning and welcome them as we break the word of life together. Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. We talked about this first part a few weeks ago, but now we want to talk about this next phrase, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. This is the year of Jubilee, and this is part two of the seven things that were given to us in the book of Luke as we find that Jesus was quoting from Isaiah 61 as he taught in the temple. The portion that we want to emphasize today is this portion that says, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. I'd like to speak this morning on this subject, fill up the tanks, fill up the tanks. Under the reading of the Word of God, everybody said, in Jesus' name, name. turn to your neighbor and shake your neighbor's hand and say, let's fill up the tanks, and you may be seated. Thank you for standing. He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Perhaps not ironic or coincidental, this, this week, this past week, our good friend Benny DeMerchant passed on to be with the Lord at the age of 75. Brother DeMerchant was a missionary to the Amazon jungle of Manaus, Brazil for 52 years. He established more than a thousand churches. He grew a church from just he and his wife and a six-month-old baby when they first went there to a church in the Amazon jungle that is well over a hundred thousand people now. While doing this, he flew his float planes up and down the Amazon River more than 20,000 hours in the air. We made several trips over the last 12 to 14 years down to the Amazon to be with Brother DeMerchant. We made several trips with men in our church to build or repair their churches, the last one being last year at this exact same time. I had the good fortune over the years to be on a lot of different missions and to fly many hours with him over the jungles of the Amazon. When I first met him, I had gone down to Uh, the Amazon to help him with a legal situation that he was facing in the country of Brazil. And so when I first met him at the airport, I was already a little shaky because our plane had tried to land three times in a storm and had to keep going around because they couldn't get their approach right. And so when we finally landed and we all survived and we were in one piece, I saw this missionary standing out there by the baggage department waiting to pick me up. I said, well, Brother DeMerchant, it's nice to meet you, but I almost didn't make it. 
we had to go around three times just to land. And he said, yeah, their instrument landing system never works here. Okay. <clears throat> he immediately took me down to the Amazon River, dropped me off my bags, and he said, I got to go to another place and get the float plane, and I'll come and pick you up. Just stay here. I had flown over 30 hours to get there, flown from Orlando to New York, and then from New York to Sao Paulo, and then from Sao Paulo back to Manaus. And so I was, I was exhausted, and he said, just stay right here. And so I stayed there, and I was like standing literally on the banks of the Amazon by myself with my bags and a straw hat. And uh, I waited, and then about an hour later, I saw a little plane flying over, and I thought, that must be him. And he landed out there and motioned for some guy in a little dugout canoe to put me in the canoe with my bags, and we went out to his plane. And we went out to his plane, and we took off. And he said, you're a pilot, right? And I said, yeah. And I got in the plane, and he said, uh, well, you can fly left seat, which is where pilot in command sits. And so I, I got there, and he said, I'll go ahead and do the takeoff for you until you get used to the to the floats. I had never float, flown a plane with pontoons. And uh, so we took off, and he sort of directed me, and I started noticing that gauges did not work in his plane. And I said, this uh, ground speed indicator doesn't work. And he had a little thing of sticky notes. And he put it over that gauge, and he said, don't look at that one. That one hadn't worked in a while. And I said, well, what about this other gauge? And he said, yeah, don't look at that one. That one doesn't work either. And so after a while, there was like eight sticky notes all over the dashboard, and and there was like one gauge that I was looking at, and he had his little uh, his little GPS tracker that he had had on a little squeegee stickum thing on the windshield. And he said that's the most important one, and so we followed that, and we landed in this little patch of water, and we floated up to this little floating dock, which was like a little fish camp, and and uh, he rolled out some hammocks, and we we hung out there for a little bit, and I said, Are we gonna what are we going to do out here? And he said, we're going to go fishing. I said, well, it's, it's starting to uh, get dark. Shouldn't, you know, shouldn't we go ahead and fish because we got to get back? And he said, no, we're going to spend the night out here and we'll fish in the morning. I said, out here, out where? I mean, we're in the middle of the jungle. And uh, he said, that was it. That's the dock right there. He said, that, and that's what we did. That's his foot and my head. And we just hung out in hammocks. And I said, out here, out here on this, on this little floating, uh, whatever it is, it's like a little, head had barrels under it. And he said, yeah, we'll sleep out here on these hammocks. And I said, well, are there wild animals? And he said, yeah, there are, but, you know, they probably won't get it to us. And I said, well, what about mosquitoes and malaria? And he said, well, the water's too acidic, so the mosquitoes, they can't hatch their larvae and so forth, so... You'll be okay. So I, I tried to go to sleep, but then I noticed there were like 50 bats that were flying over my head. And I could hear jaguars and crocodiles and all this stuff in the distance. And, and I was so exhausted. I said, I'm just going to roll over and try to go to sleep. So I rolled over on my stomach and fell asleep because I was so tired from all that traveling. Well, the next morning we got up and sure enough, he had a little guy come over and we hooked up a little uh, canoe thing and we started fishing. He was showing me how to fly fish for uh, what they call tucanari, which is peacock bass that they catch in abundance down there in that area. We started catching all these fish, and I noticed that something was kind of swelling up on my elbow. And I said, man, I got like something wrong with my elbow. He said, let me look at that. And he looked at it, and he goes, 
oh, one of those vampire bats bit you last night. I said, you've got to be kidding me. A vampire bat bit me? He said, yeah. He said, they can land while you're sleeping. They land on you, and their tongue, they got a little uh, something in their saliva, and they can decoagulate your blood. And he said, like a surgeon, they can sit there and just suck blood right out of you, and you'll never even know it. He said, you'll be all right in a couple of days. I said, well, don't they have rabies, bats? Don't they have rabies? Is it possible I could get rabies? He said, it's possible, but it's unlikely. <laughs> and we kept on fishing. That was, that was the beginning of our relationship, and he was like a second father to me over the last uh, 12 to uh, 13 years. We, we made it back to Manaus, and he said, you know, uh, he said, David, if you can't sleep, he said, you may want to read um, this and he handed me a whole stack of paper that was it was like it had turned yellow it was so old and it was a whole stack of and it had been like typed with an old royal typewriter how many of you remember those old royal typewriters he said you know if you can't sleep you may want to read some of this stuff I was I was writing a, a number of years ago when my son was fighting uh, bone cancer his son had passed at the age of 15 years old uh, due to bone cancer, and he said, I was in the hospital a lot as he was going through all of those treatments, and he said, I just started typing up some things that have happened to us over the last 40 years down here in the Amazon, and you know, if you're interested, you may want to read it, and so I started reading all of these manuscripts, and folks, I stayed up all night. I couldn't put it down. I read every one of those, and I still have them. I still have the original manuscripts, and I read through all of that and the next morning, I had only slept a few hours, but I could hear him getting up, and I was excited about what I had read, so I didn't really sleep that much. And I said, Brother DeMerchant, we have got to turn this into a book. He said, you think anybody would be interested? I said, are you kidding me? My sons, the next generation, we've got to turn all these things that God has done through your life and your family's life. We've got to, we've got to turn this into a book. And so he started showing me all these old boxes of, of photo albums. And we started going through all these old photo albums. And I started pulling out like articles when he was in Sports Illustrated and when he was in Field and Stream magazine. He'd been in all these national magazines. He, he's such a humble guy, you would never even know it. And so I just started pulling all this stuff together. And so we put it all together and we came up with a book. And that book is called Full Throttle. In fact, it became the number one bestseller in our whole denomination and I think there may even be uh, some of those that are back there um, in our bookstore. But it was just putting all of the stories together of what God had done in his life and all of the humorous things that happened. We, he started telling me all these things that had happened. He told me of one time that he flew medicine into an Indian village because of a child that had become very sick. And the child recovered and the village chief gave him a pig to thank him for bringing medicine in and and uh, so he, uh, he put the pig in his plane, and he took off. Well, pigs get very nervous, just in general, much less when they're flying. And so the pig, like, went crazy in the cockpit. And uh, Brother DeMerchant told me, he said, I was trying to fly the plane, but this pig was squealing and running all over the cockpit. And he said, it just about caused me to crash the plane, and me and the pig die. But he said, I finally got to Manaus and got that thing set down. And I determined right there that never again would a pig be on the inside of a cockpit that I was the pilot of. And I said, well, that sounds like a good thing to do. And 
He said, it, it all worked good for a while until several years after that. He said, an Indian chief that was in a tribe up the river had a son that had been bit by a poisonous snake. And he said, uh, they had gotten word. And he said, I was supposed to take a, a, a man who was a doctor and a nurse and take them uh, to this Indian chief. They had some medicine. We were going to try to save his son that had been bit by a snake. So we did that. We went up river. I delivered him. I waited. He said, they treated. They watched. And the boy recovered. And he said, once again, the Indian chief was so happy that he gave us a pig. He said, I stood on the pontoon and said, there's no pig coming on this plane. I've already had an experience with a pig inside my plane, and we almost died. There's no room. We're not going. And the nurse and the doctor explained to him that it would be very offensive to the chief of this village if you would not take this pig. And he said, but I can't take the pig. It's going gonna, it's gonna to danger all of our lives. We can't, we can't put the pig on the airplane. And so he said they worked on a system that I finally agreed to where they would take the pig and with a rope they tied it to one of the pontoons so the pig could go with them but it would not actually be in the cockpit. So he said we tied the pig, it was squealing and hollering, we tied the pig to the pontoon and, and we waved goodbye to the chief and his son was alive and everybody was happy and we took off and we made our way back to Manaus and he said as we're flying I noticed that the right side of the plane is dragging down. And he said, I can't figure out what's going on. And so he said, I tipped my wing down to see what's happened. He said, the rope with the pig has come loose from the pontoon. And now the pig is hanging like 20 feet below the plane by a rope. And he's squealing as we're flying 140 miles an hour through the air. <laughs> and, and they say pigs can't fly, you know. So he said, I realized we were in danger because when we go to land, that rope could cause the, the plane to capsize. So he said, I radioed ahead to Manaus and I said, I got an issue. I can't explain it right now and you won't believe it, but I've got a problem. I'm going to have to land by the beach and uh, we need to have some people out there ready to help us and uh, just take my word for it, we got a problem. He wouldn't go into detail because he didn't figure they would, they, would, uh, they would believe him. So he said, I come in and he said, I realized that I had to slow the pig down before I slowed the plane down. So he said, I had to come down along the side of the beach, and he said, I flew just about 20 feet above the water, and the pig was skipping across the water. And he said, you could hear it squealing as it was skipping. Across. He said, now, normally a pig would just die by fright if you just scared it and went boo. This pig had been flying and was now surfing and was still hollering. And he said, I'm thinking, I've got to slow the pig down before I can get the plane to set down. In other words, the, the, otherwise the, the drag of the pig and the rope, once he'd set the plane down, it could, it could cause it to capsize. So he had to slow the pig down. He got the pig slowed down, and finally he was able to set the plane down. When he set the plane down, of course, the rope and the pig went down to the bottom of the Amazon River. So he said, I had to get the people off. I got the people off. They had to swim a little bit, and they got to shore. I got the doctor and the nurse on shore. Then he said, I went down the rope. And he said, I went down the rope. And I got down there, thought for sure the pig would be dead. He said, the pig is standing on the bottom of the river blowing bubbles. He's still squealing. This pig has been flying. He has been surfing. He's now scuba diving. And he's still alive. So he said, I get the rope undone and the thing's fighting me and squealing and hollering. We get back up to the surface and I get the pig on the, the beach and the pig goes, <laughs> blows out a bunch of water and squeals and runs down the beach. <laughs> True story. 
He started telling me all these stories. I said, this is like, this. we could make a movie out of all of this. We have to at least put it in the book, you know. I began to look at all these pictures and hear all those stories. And as Benny would risk his life to land his plane on a little patch of water, just, just to share the gospel or to bring supplies to an Indian village that had never seen a white man and had nothing but just the loincloth around their midsection. But Benny would risk his life to go up there and to bring them the gospel. On my first visit, we went into the city to do a tour, and he was showing me this old opera house that the, the rubber barons in the Amazon had built 100 or more years ago. And a tour guide that spoke English, it was a, it was a, a Brazilian young man, of course, Portuguese being their native language, but he spoke a little English, and uh, he started giving us a tour, and he asked if we were from the States, and we started talking with him. I said I was, but I said my friend was a missionary, and this, his name's Benny, and he's lived here for many years, and, and he started saying, he said, you know, when I was a boy, I lived in a village about 200 miles up the river here, and he said, a missionary with a float plane used to come into our village and, and bring bread and teach the natives how to fly fish, and and Benny just listened, kind of nodded his head like that. And the boy started telling all about this missionary that used to come to his village when he was a boy. And after a little bit, Benny pulled a card out of his wallet that had a picture of his float plane on it. And he said, does this plane look familiar? And the boy looked at the little card. I was standing there while this was going on. And the young man became really excited. And he started to shout out, that's the plane. That's the plane that used to come into our village when I was a boy. Benny asked him the name of the village, and the boy told him the name of the village, and then they began to speak rapidly in Portuguese. And I'm not sure what all they were saying, but I noticed that the young man started to cry, and he hugged Benny. And I'm thinking to myself, this man has affected this whole area. He told me, Benny told me that when he was a boy, God had given him a dream that he could see two rivers that came together, and they were two different colors. And as these two rivers came together, two different colors they went for a little ways, and the colors still remained separate. And the Lord told him in that dream when he was just a boy growing up in Perth, New Brunswick, Canada. He said, the Lord told me that he was going to take me to this place when I got older and that I was to preach the gospel there. He said, but I woke up and I never, I never knew where that place was. He said, many years later, after being appointed to be a missionary in Manaus, Brazil, and arriving there with only my wife and our six-month-old daughter, he said, I saw for the first time in Manaus, Brazil, those two rivers coming together, the Rio Negro and the Amazon. The Rio Negro, a dark black, and the Amazon, a tan brown color. And he realized that this is the very place that God had called him when he was just a boy, that he was supposed to go and to preach the gospel to the poor. This is what God had shown him. And he said, if I ever had an opportunity he said, David, you ought to read the book called The River That God Forgot. He said, it's out of print, but you'd really enjoy it. It talks about the history of this area. And he said, maybe you can find it when you get back to the States. I went back to the States, and I went on Amazon, coincidentally. And I found the book, The River That God Forgot. It was uh, printed uh, by some company in England, and so I, I, it was used, but it was paperback. I got it, and I started reading it, and I, I began to read about it. It was a story about this particular area, the Amazon. It was about how all the rubber in the world used to come from this particular area of the Amazon because it had the right climate for all of these rubber trees, and 
And they just grew in abundance and they grew wild down there. And this was long before synthetic rubber had ever been invented. And so these rich European rubber barons, they, they would come and they would make millions of dollars as they controlled the rubber market for the entire world right out of the Amazon. They, they bought up all the land and they, they would use literally the poor people, the Indians of Peru and Brazil, to, to work the rubber fields. And they would work and work and work until they would literally drop from exhaustion. And sometimes they would just literally fall over and die in the fields because of literally working themselves to death. And, and they would just dig a hole and bury them and, and just keep right on working. And they did this for years and years. And, and these rubber barons had, had so much money, they built this enormous uh, opera a hall, this big music center right down in Manaus. That was the place we were visiting when we ran into that, that tour guide. And they would put European singers and actors on a boat for, for two weeks. And they would come all the way from Europe over to the Amazon and then go up the Amazon until they came to Manaus just to perform for one night. That's how much money they paid them just to come for one night. These, these rubber barons were so rich, but yet they were making all their money on the backs of these, these poor people. They, they knew that they controlled the rubber market, and so money was no object. But there were no laws to govern these, these rich rubber barons, and they, there was no law enforcement to to really restrict the mistreatment of these people. So for decades, these people worked as slaves in their own land, harvesting this rubber. And they, they would float the rubber down the Amazon on big barges, and they were fanatical about searching these vessels so that nothing was being taken out that would allow this rubber to grow in any other place in the world. And they had control of the world market, and they were fanatical about protecting it and guarding it. But one night, I read about this in that book, The River That God Forgot, one night, a barge slipped past customs and the immigration and all that they had set up, slipped the river down the river at nighttime. They came on and looked, but in the bottom of that barge, it was undetected. There were millions of rubber tree seeds that had been hidden down in the dirt of what looked like just a nursery. It went undetected. It sailed down the Amazon and out into the Atlantic, and it went over to Indonesia and the seeds of these rubber trees were cultivated in greenhouses, and then they were planted in a climate that was similar to the Amazon. Soon you could buy rubber from the English, and then from Asia, and then the invention of synthetic rubber from the world wars, and the rubber barons in the Amazon were out of business. They left the area, and they left a lot of people who did not know how to live other than the hard labor of the rubber plantations. They continue to live in extreme poverty, even to this very day, where they work hard for just a dollar or two dollars a day. But 52 years ago, ladies and gentlemen, a young 23-year-old man from Perth, New Brunswick, Canada, arrived with his young family and a calling in his heart to preach the gospel to the poor. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that somebody preached the gospel to me I'm glad that somebody told me that Jesus Christ is the answer. Brother Benny DeMerchant and his wife and their six-month-old baby, they started having services in their house. Just down the street, though, was a soccer stadium. And soccer is more than just the number one sport in Brazil. Soccer is God. Soccer is a religion. Soccer, they call it football, we call it soccer, it's everything. And every time they scored a goal, they would shoot off fireworks. 
Brother Demerchant still lives in that same house. And the first time I was at his house and they scored a goal down the street at that soccer stadium, they started shooting off fireworks. We were sitting at the table just eating breakfast. And of course, you know, it's hot. You're down there on the equator and windows are open and fans are going. And all of a sudden, pow, 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 pow. I thought we were under attack. I immediately dove under the dining room table and said, take cover, we're under attack. And brother and sister DeMerchant started laughing. They said, they just scored a goal down there at the soccer game. And I said, I've never heard people carry on. He said, oh yeah. He started telling me, he said, we would try to have church. We would try to have a little service in this house. And he said, every time they score a goal, he said, they shout out as loud as they can. Goal! Thousands of people. And he said, here we were trying to teach people about the Lord in our house, and they would holler, goal, as loud as they could at the top of their lungs. And he said, we'd have to wait until they stopped shouting, goal. And he said, we couldn't talk over them. It was too loud. And he said, whenever they got done and it, it sort of dissipated, he said, we keep on teaching them about the Lord. And he said, the next time we'd have a service, goal. And he said, finally, after doing this for a few months, the devil came to me one night and said, you know, why don't you just go back to Canada? These people down here all believe, belong to me, and you are never going to build a church here. And he said, no, devil, I'm going to keep on preaching the gospel. And the next time they'd have a service, go in the middle of the service, and the enemy would come and mock him one more time. As Brother Josh Herring preached last Sunday night, the enemy will come and try to mock you, what you're trying to do for the Lord, what you're trying to do to live right keep your family in church. The enemy will try to mock it, but you know what? You got to just keep on keeping on being faithful to God. I stood with Brother DeMerchant some 12 years ago whenever they had finally built Jerusalem, which is their big convention center, and they had some 8,000 people there, and he told them that story. And he said, we used to try to have service with just a handful of people, and he said, we couldn't have the service because they shouted goals so loud. But he said, now that we've got about 8,000 people here tonight, I think we ought to shout glory as loud as we can. And all of those people shouted, glory to God, as loud as they could. Hallelujah. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'll just stay faithful to God, it may seem small and insignificant, but if you just keep on being faithful to God and doing what God has put in your heart, it's going to pay off one day. Then he said, the only thing I had when I started was just an absolute confidence that God had called me to this place. And as it turns out, that was enough. To just know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is on your side. Sometimes, folks, you may not have anything else. There may not be any circumstances to confirm what you feel in your spirit, but you know that God has a promise and a calling and a destiny in your life, and God's going to bring it to pass one day. You just got to keep on being faithful and say, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is on my side, and if God be for me, who can be against me? It may seem like what you're doing is very insignificant, but you'll stick to it. Something powerful will happen. Some of you sitting here right now, you know that God has called you. He never intended for you to live with addictions and pain that has trapped you and kept you living way down here in a lifestyle that was never his intention for your life. He's got something special for you. He's got an anointing for you. 
He has got a double portion of his blessing for you. And the enemy doesn't want you to know that. The enemy wants you to think that you've got to just survive from one day of struggle to the next day. But I've come to tell you that our God is bigger. Our God is greater. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. Sometimes we think that our anointing has to be something big and great and something that will make the headlines. But it may just be that God has called you to serve your fellow man. It may just be that he's called you to be the best employee that you can be. To be the best witness at your school or at your job. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen? If God's called you to do that, it doesn't matter what adversity you may face. It's enough to just know that God has called you and God has anointed you for that purpose. After a while, the church in Brazil began to grow and Benny and Teresa began to train the people to be leaders and to be ministers. Benny invented a block that's now called the Benny Block all throughout Manaus, Brazil. And, and they could build churches fast and they could build them inexpensive and yet they were sturdy. The, the Benny Blocks were safe and, and they were sort of perforated and they allowed the wind to blow through so they could build a, a block building and, and build the, put the Benny Blocks where a window would be and it was safe from thieves and whatnot breaking in and yet also it allowed the breeze to blow through and so they were able to build churches and they began to build churches left and right with these Benny blocks and many churches started going up around town and more and more people started to get saved and now Benny not just had his 172 Cessna but now uh, she's for Christ and the global missions department had bought him a 206 which was a plane with a, a little bigger engine and he could get to the other places a little quicker and and the places down the river that he had to fly and had an extra seat in the back and so the work of God was growing and things were moving at a really steady pace and he would be able to fly his 206 up the river and they started building stick churches all up and down the Amazon he had several workers that were helping him and, and they were busy and they were going to and fro and during one flight, he was supposed to take with him a young man that was a national, that was one of the young leaders that had been in their Bible school. He was supposed to go with him upriver, and there was a lady that was also an AIM worker, which they call AIM workers or associates in missions, uh, people that are going into being missions uh, workers, but they're just starting out. And there was a lady from the States that was there, and she was there as an AIM worker. And so they were getting ready to take off in the morning. And uh, so Brother DeMerchant and uh, this man and this lady, they... They got in the 206, and they were going to fly upriver. And, of course, because time was of the essence, he had people that helped him. And there was a young boy that uh, was there that helped him with his airplane. And he, uh, he took the uh, gas, uh, blue gas, plastic gas tanks and filled up the gas in the wings of these airplanes. And so he checked with the boy, and he said, are the tanks full? And he said, yeah, they're full. And so they went to take off. But that day, when they took off, there was something different. As they reached about 200 feet above the water, the engine started to sputter and, and, and just quit. And uh, that's the most vulnerable time. Some of you will remember that, that flight up in a uh, U.S. air flight up in New York that hit those birds uh, just after takeoff and, and lost both engines. And, and the miracle of him having to land, that captain uh, landing that, that plane in the Hudson River and all those people being saved. It's the, it's the most dangerous time for for a, a, an airplane is on takeoff to lose power, but yet there was a problem and both engines sputtered and Brother DeMerchant quickly had to make a decision. It was a, it was a windy day and, and the waves were sort of boisterous in the area where they were at there in the Amazon. And so he said, I quickly tried to turn the plane around and land, but he said, I was only about 200 feet 
above the water and the wind was blowing and he said, I, I got the plane turned around and right as I got it turned around and tried to set it down, he said the wave hit the side of it and I got one pontoon down, but the next one blew the plane over and so the plane capsized it. And he said, uh, I kicked the door open with my foot as the water immediately rushed into an airplane now as it's upside down in the Amazon. And he said, I grabbed uh, the door to try to open to, to get to my passengers. But he said, the new 206s, they had not put doors in the back where that third row was. And he says, I struggled to try to get them out and, and go up and take a breath and came back down in just a few seconds. In just a few seconds, he had lost both of his passengers as they drowned in that flight. One, a national leader, and the other, an aim worker from the United States. He said, I went home, David, and I, I went in my room, and I locked the door to my bedroom. And he said, I just cried for several days. I didn't know what to do. I felt responsible for these, these two people dying. Found out later that the engines had sputtered because condensation had developed in the gas tanks. When there's space between where the fuel ends and the top of the gas tank in that real humid climate down there, condensation develops, becomes water. And when it's in your airplane, long as there's fuel, the engines are running. But then when that water passes through, the engines kick out. That's what had happened. And he said, I still felt responsible. And he said, I locked myself in my room. I cried. And he said, the devil came to me again and said, I told you, you were supposed to go back to Canada. You didn't listen to me. Now you're responsible for other people dying. He said, I listened to those voices and I prepared to go back to Canada. But he said, on the 10th day, an angel stood at the foot of my bed in the middle of the night and said, I am a messenger from God. You are to continue to preach the gospel for there is a mighty church here and many people who need to be saved. He said, just like that, the angel was gone and disappeared. And he said, I got out of my bed and I, I kneeled down the side of my bed and said, God, if you'll stay with me, if you'll, if you'll be the wind beneath my wings, I'll stay here and keep working for you. But he said, I determined two things at that point. He said, number one, I determined that I would stay in Brazil no matter what. And I would fulfill my calling as a missionary to this land that God had showed me when I was just a boy. And he said, the second thing that I determined is that I would always fill the tanks myself. I would always fill the tanks myself. This picture up here on your left is just last year. He's 74 years old. He still wouldn't let us help him fill the gas tanks. Years later, I would say, Brother DeMerchant, let me carry that up there. He said, I'll fill the tanks myself. He never let anybody from that day forward ever fill his tanks except himself. He said, I made up my mind from that point forward. I was taking responsibility. I was taking responsibility of the fuel, I was taking responsibility of the flight. No longer would I allow anybody else to be blamed. If there was a problem, it would be my fault. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
ladies and gentlemen, at some point, we have to take responsibility for our own salvation. We have to make up in our minds that we're going to fill our own takes. We're going to be responsible for the decisions that we make. It's not my mama's fault. It's not my daddy's fault. It's not my spouse's fault. I'm making up my mind. I'm going to fill my own tank. I'm going to be responsible for the condition of my own soul. I'm going to make up in my mind that I'm going to be ready when the rapture takes place. It's not going to be anybody else's fault. I'm going to fill the tanks myself. The Lord told Samuel after the Old Testament tells us that the prophet Samuel had been very low because he had been rejected by many people in his life. His nation, Israel, had rejected him. They said, we're tired of having a prophet that runs around here with a staff and pointing his finger at us and telling us what we need to do. We want a king like everybody else. His own nation had rejected him, and then his sons had rejected him. The Bible said they perverted the judgments of God. They had rejected him, and then King Saul had even rejected him because King Saul didn't want to have to wait for the old prophet Samuel to show up and to pray before they went to battle. So he took it on himself to do, and he refused to obey the commandments of the law. And now Samuel, who had started out with a horn, a ram's horn full of oil, when he had anointed Saul to be king, now he mourns for King Saul. For 16 years, he mourns for King Saul. He mourns for those that have rejected him in his life. For 16 years, his horn goes empty of any oil. Finally, the Lord says to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for King Saul? See, and I have rejected him. Go and fill your horn with oil and go to Jesse's house. I've got a new king, hallelujah. And I want you to go and anoint the future and the promise is in Jesse's house. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, you may be mourning over the past, but God's got a promise for your future that's in the pastures of Jesse's house. Come on, you've been looking backward long enough. You've been mourning over the past long enough. Fill up your horn with oil. Fill up your tank with God's power. He's got a future for you. The calling of God is still upon you. It's not over yet. Turn to your neighbor and say that. Shout it in their eardrum. <laughs> it's not over yet. That oil was a sign of the blessing of God. But Samuel had let it get low because he didn't think there was any hope. But God was already working on a future. All God needed was Samuel to go fill up his horn with oil. So I ask you these rhetorical questions this morning, my friend. What has drained your tank? Has it been hurt, rejection, situations that did not have an explanation? Fill up your tank this morning. You do it. Don't leave it for anyone else to do. Fill up your tank. Get your anointing back. Get your joy back. There are still unfulfilled promises. And this is the year of Jubilee. This is the year that we fill the horn back up with oil. This is the year that we get our joy back. This is the year that we get our dance back. This is the year that we get our shout back. This is the year that our children come home. This is the year that the promises of God are fulfilled. This is the year to fill up your tank.
doesn't mean that you won't have nicks and cuts and bruises along the way. One time, Brother Benny DeMerchant and I and Pastor Larry Sims from Tallahassee were trying to take off from a little patch of water because there had been a drought down there in the jungle, and there was no wind. And we just had a little bit of water we were trying to take off from. And we tried three times to take off, and we just couldn't get enough lift. And finally, Brother Sims said, you know, if you'll just pull over to the banks here and let me out, I'll stay here, and I'll find a way back later if i got to walk this jungle. Brother Benny said, no, 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 you'll be all right, Brother Larry. Then he handed me this little foot pump thing and he said David you get out there with this pump and he said pump the water out of the floats I've got too much water in the floats so I got out there and I pumped and pumped and pumped and ran the hose down and the pontoon and water was coming out and coming out and of course you know water fluid is heavy so we got all that out and and uh we got it all top sealed back up and I got back in the plane and Benny said I think we can do it now the wind's starting to pick up a little bit well, the drought had made it where this little bit of water was a little area where the little boys in the village could fish and they would go out and they would put sticks in the water and they'd run a little net in between the sticks and fish would swim through and they'd get caught in the net. So there were little sticks all over the place. And when we were trying to take off, we had to dodge these sticks almost like landmines as we were trying to take off, you know. And they were out there with their little hollowed out canoes and we're trying not to hit them of a little boy on a canoe and try not to hit one of his sticks and we're trying to take off and all this and so now we got some weight off of the plane as we had pumped water around now the wind had picked up a little bit and we thought we could take off and so we were trying to go and, and as the plane sits way down in the water before it, it gets you know it's got to get up what he calls up on the step it had to get up where it's hydroplane in the water first and then you get lift after that and as we were going, you're, you're sitting back like that. So you're looking up. You can't really look level until it gets up and starts to plane. And so we're going through the water. And I'm like, look out, Brother Benny. Look out for that stick. And he's getting his speed up. I said, watch out for that stick. He said, I see it. It's the stick. I said, I thought you said you saw it. He said, I thought you was talking about that one over there. I said, no, the one that was right in front of us. I said, let's stop and let's look at the propeller and make sure we don't have any nicks or cuts. He said, no, I think we'll be okay. He pulls the yoke back and there's trees right here and here's us. And literally the pontoons are right over the tops of the trees. And I'm going, Jesus, 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 Jesus. He said, ah, we got it. We barely cleared those trees. After we were up at a safe altitude, he looked over at me and he saw that I was several shades wider than when we had started this journey. And he said, David? I said, yes, sir. He said, as long as you got power, you can handle a few nicks and scrapes. I made a mental note of that. As long as I've got power, I can handle a few nicks and scrapes. I can get altitude in my life, even though life throws us some curveballs and some things we didn't expect. We've run into some sticks in life that we weren't planning on running into. But you know what? 
as long as I've got the power of God, as long as I've got the Holy Spirit of the Lord, as long as I can still get my hands up and say, thank you, Jesus, this is the day that the Lord hath made. I will rejoice and be glad. I can get altitude. If I can get altitude, I can get the right attitude. I can make it. As long as I've got His power, I can make it. As long as the Lord will still show His favor on us and be the wind beneath our wings, we can make it. One time I was flying with him and he was asleep and I noticed that both tanks were empty and we were over the jungle. I woke him up and I felt like, you know, the disciples careth not that we perish when they woke the Lord up. I said, Benny, we're out of gas. And he looked at the tanks and he grabbed the yoke and sort of rocked the wings back and forth and sloshed the fuel around in the tanks. And he said, go to the right tank. And so I switched over to the right tank and he said, drain that one first. So we flew for a little bit on the right tank and Sure enough, it sputtered and it went out. Then he said, go to the left tank. So I switched over to the left tank. He said, I'll fly it on in from here. So we went to the left tank and we flew, we, we, we flew it for a little bit on the left tank. And then it was obvious the left tank was running out of gas. And I'm thinking, I've got a young family. I'm going to die in this jungle with this man who has a death wish. And then he did something that I've never seen before. He took the plane and lifted it up like this on the left side. And we flew in like this with the left wing up high. I said, why are we flying like this? He said, that's so the fuel will drain down out of the tank into the engine. (laughs) Then it started to sputter as even that wouldn't work. And about that time, we had come over the little area we were going to land. He set it down. And as he set it down on the water, (laughs) it conked out. And he looks at me and says, perfect. (laughs) I said, perfect. I nearly passed out. (laughs) We coasted for as long as we could, but the floating hangar was still a little ways off. And I said, now what? He said, see those two paddles behind us? He said, get those out. And I I got in the back of the cab and got the two little paddles. He said, you get one paddle, you get up on the left pontoon, I'll get this one. And we stood on the front of the pontoon and we paddled like that until we finally got over to the hangar when we got there I saw a little man he's got fuel hidden all up and down I don't know how they're going to ever find it all he's got fuel hid all up and down that jungle some guy with a little house and and there'd be a couple of barrels of fuel back there I saw a guy coming with a canoe with that big blue thing he said he's coming with gas he'll be here in a little bit and we sat there and he said David He said, if you plan it right, you can run out of gas just as your plane sets down. And I said, why not carry more fuel than you need? Just in case you hit bad weather or something. He said, you can do that. But he said, it takes fuel to carry fuel. Fuel's heavy. And you don't always have the luxury of extra fuel, especially if you're taking off in tight conditions. you got to just take the fuel that you need to get to where you're going. He said, you got to learn how to use every drop of fuel that you have. Don't waste any of it. I thought about that as we swung in a hammock and pondered another day in the jungle of the Amazon. I don't ever want to waste any fuel. I don't ever want to waste a church service. I don't want to waste an opportunity to praise God. I don't ever want to waste a chance to be thankful and to say, God, you have been so good to me. I exalt your holy name. 
as we swung back and forth in those hammocks, he said, David, they want me to retire, but this is home. Where else can I go? What else am I going to do? This is my calling. This is what I love to do. I will die here with my planes and my people. Last week, it looked like he was recovering. They had taken him out of ICU, even though he had a blood clot that had gone to his lung, and even though it had caused him to go septic, it looked like all that was under control, and he was talking and sitting up. Family came in. Church officials came in. They made a determination that they would move him to Houston, where his daughters live. And when he got there, his daughters would be able to take care of him. Then they would sell his airplanes and his house, and they would get another missionary on site. The next day, the family told me he got real depressed. He said, I'll never fly again. I'll never preach again. This is my mission. I don't know what I'm going to do. He cried himself to sleep. Two days later, he had two heart attacks. The next day, his kidney shut down. And the next day, that was Wednesday morning, he was gone. I replayed all of our conversations in my head. And I realized... He was filling his own tank, even at the very end. He never wanted to go to Houston. He told me more than once, I'll live and die in Brazil, because this is where God called me to be. Ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Benny DeMerchant, he died on his own terms. He died in Brazil, the place of his calling. He died with his planes and his people, and yesterday... Yesterday afternoon, thousands of people gathered from all over Brazil to that Jerusalem Convention Center that they had built to hold their general conferences, his planes right there alongside, there among the people that he was anointed to preach to, the planes that he knew like the back of his hand that had carried him to all of those villages. There, they gave honor to this man who for 52 years fulfilled his calling to preach the gospel to the poor. He did it his way. He did it his way. His guardian angels, you can stand, his guardian angels that had been busy for 52 years took him a little higher. And perhaps they're resting a little easier today. And so the few moments that I had with you today was simply my tribute to a good friend. But I don't think it was by coincidence when I saw that that was the next stage of our year of Jubilee. My good friend, Brother DeMerchant, filled his own tanks all the way to the very end. What about you? What about you this morning? How long will you mourn for Saul? Could have spent the rest of his life mourning over those two people that he lost in that plane crash. But instead, after that, thousands of people began to come to the Lord. The church went from three or four thousand to a hundred thousand after that. He said, I could have spent the rest of my life just looking back, mourning over the loss of my 15-year-old son to bone cancer, spending my life asking God why. Wondering why those two national leaders and AIM workers died in that plane crash. But he said, instead, I remember what that angel said to me. There's a great church that's still out here. So he said, I poured myself into what my anointing had been to preach the gospel to the poor.
Ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you this today? That more than ever before, I'm convinced that the greatest thing that we have to offer this world that we live, this that we are a part of in our humanity, places that we go, jobs that we work, schools that we attend, the greatest thing you can tell somebody is about Jesus Christ that loves them, Jesus Christ that will save their soul. Perhaps the messenger of the Lord that stood by Benny's bed that night can stand by your pew this morning. And perhaps that same messenger will whisper these words to you. I have a destiny for you. I have a calling for you. I have work for you to do. Rise up and fill your tank. You do it. You take responsibility for your own soul. You look forward and fill up your spirit with the joy of the Lord. Because God's got great things for you. Would you lift your hands right now in your heart all over this building? Would you make that your prayer? Lord, right now, I don't understand things that have happened. I don't know why I've gone through the things that I've gone through. But I trust in you, God. And I believe in you, Lord. And I'm asking you right now today, God, to once again fill up this vessel, Lord, with your spirit. Let me once again come into the throne room of grace and find help in a time of need. If you feel the Lord calling you, I wonder if you would step out from where you're standing this morning. I know the hour's getting late, and if you've got to go, you're dismissed. Thank you so much for being here. But maybe there's some people that want to come to this altar, and you want to say to God this morning, I hear your voice. I know you're calling me, Lord. I know you've got something greater for me today. I'm not going to just walk, Lord, at this low level. I'm going to climb up to a higher place. I'm going to give you all of my heart and all of my life. Come on, why don't you take your neighbor by the hand. Let's make our way to the altar. Let's make our way into his presence one more time. I don't want to waste this opportunity. I know his power and his presence is here.
bless you, Jesus. We bless you, Jesus. Jesus We bless you Jesus We bless your holy name God